0: Welcome to a Too Much Effing Perspective rock and roll recreation, where we replay one of our hundreds of thousands of favorite episodes. I'm your host, Alan Keller.
1: And I'm your co-host, Alex Hoffman. And today, we're featuring our chat with OK Go drummer, Dan Kanopka.
0: Our conversation with Dan ran on November 11th, 2021. And we were frankly so dense at the time, it wasn't until much later that we realized the irony of Of the date that episode aired.
1: Right. There's no better time to turn a podcast inspired by Spinal Tap up to 11 than on the date, 11-11.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like someone throwing you a party on the same day that you just so happen to have been born.
1: (laughs) That's called a birthday party, Alan.
0: Oh, yeah, that is. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, in the immortal words of Damien Kulash, Tim Nordland, and Andy Ross of OK Go, here it goes again. Our chat from 1111 with their drummer and our friend, Dan Kanopka. But first,
1: a short break. Alan, in the movie that inspired our podcast, This Is Spinal Tap, The band, Spinal Tap, enthusiastically sets off on a tour to promote their new album, only to be met with a buzzsaw of canceled shows, unattended promo events, and general indifference.
0: If only they had gotten their music out there on all the streaming platforms beforehand. Remember, there
1: weren't streaming platforms in 1984 when the movie was made, old chum.
0: Well, at least they should have had an app which would let them upload new releases right from their phone.
1: Phones had cords back then and couldn't be taken out of the house.
0: Well, they could have gotten instant access to their royalties so they could afford seven suites for their crew instead of the one
1: suite on the seventh floor as is in the movie this is Final Tap, alan there wasn't even an internet 40 years ago and to be honest i'm not sure there's a way to do all that stuff even today oh contraire <laughs> then you don't know about distro kid huh
0: well tell me what's that DistroKid? Yeah. It's a digital music distribution service that makes it easy for musicians to get their tunes into online stores and streaming services like iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Deezer, Tidal, and all the other ones. And you can manage your DistroKid account right from the DistroKid app. I'm sure that's what Spinal Tap did when their single took off in Japan.
1: What don't you understand about the past, present, and future? Not to mention movies versus reality. Who do you think I am, Einstein? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, DistroKid is the future of getting your music out there today. Sign up now and get the VIP treatment with a special TMEP show 30% discount. Just type in distrokid.com slash VIP slash TMEP and save big. That's distrokid.com. Slash VIP slash TMEP and get 30% off your full year subscription. Tell them Alan sent you. Yeah, you don't have to do that part. Bowie, Dylan, Marley.
0: Dan, welcome to the show. You know, OK Go is a really interesting band. You guys started out as being, you know, your typical major label signee to become this multimedia powerhouse that really revolutionized how bands become successful on other platforms like YouTube. And even yourself, you were just a drummer from Chicago and now you can add acting and dancing to your resume.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, I think when we got signed, we were prepared to do what other signed bands did, which was tour, make a video, tour some more, make another record, make a video, and we were just ready to do whatever was happening on MTV. And then, you know, our song got released and it had some regional success, but really, the record was kind of dead right away, and we still had records to make. So we went to Sweden, and we made our second record because we didn't want to do the LA Big Record, Capital Record Studio recording experience. And at around that time, I think we all realized that the art by committee, the e you know, folk involved and the... Managers that work at the label with them involved, it just felt like a really diluted, disingenuous art form for us. And so when the funding stopped for like tour support and the higher budget videos, we just started making the things that we wanted to make. It was just us and what we thought was cool. And that's what we did from the backyard dance video that kind of started the whole thing off. And then the treadmill video that really put us on the map. At that point, we really didn't look back. We just made the things we wanted to make. We didn't ask them for permission. And we would find funding elsewhere and make the type of videos that we thought were cool to us. That's kind of how it started.
0: I think it's great because you know you really broke open with the treadmill video. And if anyone hasn't mm-hmm. seen it, go on YouTube, put in OK Go Treadmill because it's Fantastic. Thanks. But metaphorically, you guys were put on the star treadmill, right? Go with the motion, keep the pace. And then in the video, that's how it starts. And then you start dancing and jumping from treadmill to (laughs) treadmill. It's kind of a good metaphor for your career, wouldn't you say?
2: Yeah. No one's ever really said that. It's kind of funny that you look at it that way. We really did sort of bounce around as much as we could and made as many different things as possible.
1: When you made your second record in Sweden, were you guys still in Chicago or had you moved to L.A. at that point?
2: I think two of the guys had moved to L.A. I was still in Chicago. But in between those records, we were touring the whole time. Right. We like wrote most of the record on the road. Who were you touring with? Like What bands? We did some stuff with the Donnas. We started early on opening for They Might Be Giants. That was the very first real touring experience we had. And... Gosh. I didn't do the research on this one. <laughs> Don't worry about it. I forget.
1: <laughs> so Dan, it seems like you also had a nose for where things were headed, going to Sweden to make a record. And that's happens to be where Spotify gets founded. And then you guys start pioneering pioneer these backyard dance videos. And who would have known that 20 yeah. years later or more on TikTok, that's the way to become a star. So you guys were like on the bleeding edge.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we wanted to go to Sweden because there was a producer named Tora Johansson there who worked with the Cardigans, right? The Cardigans, yeah. Like, you worked with The Cardigans, and then and there was another group that he was with. But we really liked his sound, and there was no other place. Like, that was the farthest we could get from Los Angeles, away from all the people that were going to be bopping in and trying to influence us. And we recorded that record in a room together. There was, like, no overdubs. It was just real honest-to-God playing. And that was the best. It was a really great experience. Those
1: church steeples are enough to inspire art <laughs> yeah. in yeah. Stockholm. Those things are surreal.
2: Yeah, we would get up every day and ride our bikes across town, and night came around 3.34, right. and we had like one <laughs> little pub that we would go to, and it was really the best place to make a record. Neat.
0: Well, you did open for someone similar to Spinal Tap. You guys opened for puppet shows. Not just any puppet shows. You opened for the Muppets and for Sesame
1: Street. The ultimate puppet show.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I've, I, when you say open up, I, I don't know what you mean by that exactly. We did some projects with the Muppets. Well, you're on the Muppet show. The Muppets aren't on your we're show. on the Muppet show. Yes, that's true. We were asked to do the theme song. Don't
0: pull attitude about
2: the Muppets, man. Don't say we like, <laughs> were on par with the Muppets. You guys were with the legends. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Working with the Muppets was fantastic. I mean, you know, like everybody in my band was like really into the Muppets. I think there was a pretty big gap where they weren't really around and then they came back and we were there. And so that was like incredibly exciting for us. And so we did the theme song, which was fun. And then they liked it so much, we made a music video with them. And unlike OK Go Videos, everything went totally on schedule and perfectly on time. And (laughs) nobody got hurt. Nobody threw up. (laughs) So it was great to work with the Muppets. Sesame Street was awesome too. But, you know, that's public television. There was not a whole lot of money to fund the project that we did with them. And so when we shot the music video for Primary Colors, we shot that in Chinatown in Manhattan in the middle of the summer in this building that was not air conditioned and it took two 12-hour days to get it done. So it was grueling, but it was a really good move. I think one of the smartest things we ever did because it's opened us up to so many little fans, you know, like little kids that now know OK Go from this silly song and this video that was on Sesame Street.
1: Yeah, it's a good future-proofing strategy. Yeah. Build a couple generations of fans. Yeah.
0: Well, there's one more classic scene, which is you having a staring contest with Animal. That's not a produced video. That's a handheld thing (laughs) like at an after party, right? Yeah. Yeah. You're awesome. I mean, like, I couldn't believe it. You were absolutely stone-faced for about five minutes while Animal just went "Ah, in your face, right?
2: Yeah. It was a Webby Award show. And we had won and the Muppets had won something. And I think somebody from our camp reached out to them and said, can we do something? And they were like, sure. And so we came up with the idea of a staring contest between the two drummers. And we just sat up in an empty office and I sat there with Animal and we had a a stare down. And it was pretty much all improvised. (laughs) I remember in the middle of it, I was like, I don't know how this is going to play out. (laughs) I definitely should lose. And what was the crazy thing, just by chance, Zach Galifianakis is in that shot. And I didn't know who he was at the time, but he was like directly in the center of us. And the whole thing is just so crazy and amazing. (laughs)
0: You are probably one of the few people that can tell us
2: what a Muppet's breath smells like. (laughs) Because he was right in your face
0: the entire time. (laughs) Not only that, you did a flirtatious video with Miss
1: Piggy.
2: That's right. Yeah. Oh
1: my goodness. Some of your bandmates are in bed with the Muppets too, right? I and mean, the right. whole thing is just really racy. Yeah,
2: it, it it gets pretty hot with the Muppet okay go thing. <laughs> well,
1: I have personal experience with that. For a
0: summer, I used to do singing telegrams mm-hmm. during college. And I had a dress as Miss Piggy. And so I would be in a complete Miss Piggy costume. So you didn't know who I was or what gender I was, and I would get groped by the men at these parties and once I was groped and I said I may be a pig but I'm not a slut and I left the party it's it's very dicey
2: being a Muppet yeah yeah There was one other thing about the Muppet thing that I'll never forget it was really kind of shocking was you know there's one guy who does maybe three or four voices and the puppets have their own handlers and so they'll be doing their scene and they'll call cut and then the handlers will come around with these like big velvet beds and you'll sit there and you're totally glued to this muppet and all of its antics and like how funny and charismatic it is and then it just dies wow it's the freakiest weirdest thing to see because you're like there's kermit and then it's like somebody checks him out of his brain and just goes he just lays down in the velvet and then they swoop him away and he's gone. <laughs> and it's like a, just a really surreal thing to see, like, the life just disappear in an instant from these wow. massive characters. That is too much effing perspective right there.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't it? that's a it? Fasc- that's a fascinating observation.
2: Oh, what happened to Miss Picky? She's gone. <laughs> huh? It's kind of weird. It took a little while to get used to that.
0: I know that your ego fights the f- the fact that you opened for puppets, right? <laughs> and But it, remember... In the video of the theme song, at the end, the Muppets are operating your strings. That's
2: right. Right? That's right.
1: In the film, This is Spinal Tap, we always want to know from our guests, what's your favorite scene? Yes. And why?
2: Okay. My favorite one is the Druid scene. Nigel is talking about the Druids and, and like, nobody knew who they were or what they were doing. And I don't know why that really just really made me laugh really hard. And then the follow-up with the stage prop being so ridiculous. It's an altogether great scene. I, I really like that one.
0: Well, you know, the Druid scene is based on Black Sabbath ordering Stonehenge, but it's the opposite thing. They accidentally said meters instead of
1: feet. Oh, and really? it was way yeah, it was way too large. <laughs> Do you know that, Alex? I think you told me that. I feel like I saw Black Sabbath on that tour. I believe that was with Ian Gillen from Deep Purple as the as the singer.
2: The second scene I want to mention, just because it was a close second, is the cucumber scene. He gets busted at the airport security with that. And what's really funny to me about that scene is obviously the, you know how insane that is. He's got this thing in his pants that's got tinfoil wrapped around it. But what really cracks me up is the sound of the metal detector. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, Derek Smalls never lived down that he had a cucumber in his pants. You have never lived down your bladder situation in Boston, right? That's
2: true. Can you tell us that story, please? Yeah, sure. This story was from 2001, and we were still touring in a van, playing these small, like, 300-seat places. And in Boston, there's a place called the Paradise Club, And it's really great rock and roll club. And this is like maybe the first or second time we'd been there. And the dressing room for the openers was sort of like a glorified broom closet. And it was maybe 50 or 60 feet from the patron's bathroom. And so you could set your backpack down in there. And you could hang out there if you wanted to. But you don't. And so you just (laughs) walk around. And... By the time that we were done with my set, I had maybe, you know, four or five beers. And instead of making the trek to use the patron's bathroom, I decided to just pee in the closet where all of our stuff was. Well, when I started doing that, somebody was in there. I didn't notice that work there and was stopped oh, no. me and was super upset and said I had to leave. And they were going to get security, and they were going to kick me out because I was actually peeing in the bucket that had all the marquee letters in it. <laughs> and I didn't know that. And the next day, we're driving, and I get a phone call from our manager saying that the Paradise people are super upset because um, one of the OK Go dudes pissed in the, the marquee bucket. <laughs> so I ended up calling the club and and apologizing to anybody who would listen Until finally I talked to somebody that was important enough to say, like, we're cool. And that was embarrassing. No one in the band knew it because I didn't tell anybody. And they were like, what the hell's wrong with you? Why would you do that? (laughs) And so we go back to the Paradise maybe a year and a half later. And on the drum riser, there's a bucket sitting next to my drum chair that's got Dan's piss bucket written on the side (laughs) of it. And that happens every single time that we play there for like the next seven years like every time I get there there's this piss bucket that means that the story has changed hands and passed over to all these different people that have worked there (laughs) and like maybe it's become legend I don't know
0: Speaking of taking a piss, some people with large egos need the piss taken out of them from time to time. And there's a story to that effect I've heard from friends of mine who toured with the great Brian Wilson. Um, Once at Madison Square Garden, Don Henley approached Brian for an autograph, and Brian proceeds to write to a great songwriter from Brian. He gives it back to Henley, and before Henley can leave, Brian snatches it out of his hand again, crosses out, great, great. And replaces it with the word good. (laughs) (laughs) Now, most people know Don Henley has a very healthy ego, so that must have hurt coming from the guy who wrote Pet Sounds.
2: That's so funny.
0: So you once had an experience where you took the piss out of someone from
2: Alice in Chains. Yes, yes. Can you tell us that, that nice little nugget? Yeah, around that time when we were coming in and out of L.A. a lot. Lonnie and Carmela are my cousins, and Lonnie had gotten married to Kirk Hammett, who's the lead guitar player in Metallica. And they were like in this really big time rocker scene. And Carmella, she was the younger sister and she was having fun in LA. And she's like, You should come out with me and my boyfriend, Jerry Cantrell. And
1: I was like, Awesome. Like, and I have seen Jerry Cantrell open for Metallica.
2: Oh, really? Wow. Jerry Cantrell is the lead guitar player from Alice in Chains. And she's like, you want to meet us at the Rainbow, this restaurant on the Hollywood Strip? And I was like, yeah, totally. Let's go. And so... That's on Sunset. Yeah. 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 Sunset. And I went there and they were in a booth and I sat with them and I was just excited. I was like, great to meet you, Jerry. And Jerry was pretty much already in party zone. He didn't really have nothing to say to either of us. He just kind of looked around and he ordered his food. And then he's like, Dan's going to have the same thing, the surf and turf. And I was like, okay, all <laughs> right. And so we have our dinner. I don't think he eats it. I don't think cocaine gives you much of an appetite. I shoveled it down. We we're having a good time talking. Oh, Carmel and I were talking. And he's like, let's get out of here. And so we go down the street and we hit all those different rock clubs. We just walk through right past the lines, straight in there. He's hugging people, talking to people. And we're just like, wow, this is so cool. And so we have this rock and roll experience. And the bars are starting to close. And he's like, let's go back to my house up in the Hollywood Hills and we'll hang out. And I was like, sure. So we walk up to his house. We go in there, we keep drinking and stuff and he puts on his unreleased solo record. And I was like, "Sweet, this is so cool." And we're talking about the musicians that played on it and and you know, the guy from Faith No More played drums on it, you know, Zach Wilde was on it. All sorts of cool stuff. And I'm like, "This is awesome." We're listening. And we get kind of the end of the album, and I was just like, you know what, Jerry? What's really awesome about this record, and what's so great about it to me, is that it's unlike Alice in Chains. He's like, yeah, why, why do you say that? I'm like, because it doesn't have any of the forced rhymes. And he's like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, you listen to Alice in Chains. It's like, Fox, Trots. Brewster, Brewster, like every song is a forced <laughs> rhyme, and his jaw opened up, and Carmel was like Dan, and I was like, no, seriously, just listen to it, and I was you doubled doubled down, down on, on this thing, thinking that he had nothing to do with the lyrics, but apparently he wrote all of it. Oh my, goodness. he was like the main writer on everything, <laughs> and then I realized I was like, oh wait a minute, you wrote. All this stuff. And he's like, yeah, that's all me. Whoops. <laughs> but he, he was okay with it. I think he had a laugh. I don't think anyone had ever said that to him. Uh, you know what you should have done? You should have taken out a piece of paper and said
0: to a great lyricist and <laughs> handed it to him and then taken it back Take and bag. crossed
2: out great and said, good. Good. That's right. I should have done that.
1: I want to share a story about going to a musician's house in the Hollywood Hills as well. It's not as good a story as yours. But – um. I actually was on tour with a band called The Chills from New Zealand, and one of their managers was Melanie Ciccone, who is Madonna Ciccone's sister. Mm-hmm. So we got to go up to Madonna's house in the hills and swim in the pool and admire the the kitchen that had separate stoves and... <laughs> things. like Madonna wasn't there, by the way, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) it was cool to be in her space. And I actually tried to pull a little, not really a prank, but I'll date myself here. This was pre-cell phone, right? And I really wanted to tell my parents that I was at Madonna's house, but I didn't have a cell phone. So I was trying to find a sneaky way to go find a telephone and call long distance. (laughs) <laughs> on Madonna's phone back to my parents in Green Bay, Wisconsin, say, hey, guess where I am? I thought, you know what? That wouldn't be cool. No. I shouldn't charge long distance to, to Madonna's phone bill. She could afford it.
2: She'd be like, who's calling Green Bay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Come join us. We're having a lot of fun. Thanks for checking it out. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you
2: like. Dan, are you still kicked out of Canada? I am now able to go into Canada without any sort of extra security. Thank goodness. It was, gosh, 2007 or something. Okay, go is invited to play some sort of like rodeo concert outside of Calgary Stampede. I think. Was that it? I mean, that that is the biggest rodeo in the world. I think it was that one. It was awesome. It's like Summerfest, but up there, we had to fly in. Everybody in the airplane, all our crew guys and bandmates, we didn't like get together before we landed to talk about the passport control card that you have to fill out. You can say either you're coming for pleasure? You know, are you coming for leisure or are you coming for work? And some of us wrote one thing and some of us wrote the other thing. <laughs> and so when they realize that we're, you know, y'all walk up to the different kiosk and they're like, okay, this isn't adding up. Where are you guys going? What are you doing? And so they force us all to do a secondary bag check. And I think this was like 1130 at night. And they pull us out And they start going through all of our stuff individually. And this is not just the x-ray. This is pull everything out. And they do the swabbing on everything. And they get to me and they pull out my stuff. And for whatever reason, they're like, we're going to check for drugs. And they swab the inside of my bag. And then they get to my toiletry bag. And they put the little handkerchief in the machine and sure enough it goes bing 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 bing. Oh no. And now there's like three guards around me and they put my arms behind my back and they do the zip tie thing and I'm now fucking under arrest. Oh and no. I was like what's going on? And they're like we found narcotics in your bag. I'm like you didn't find any narcotics in my bag. They're like there's residue all over your toiletry bag, and you've got to go and sit in a cell until we figure this out. Did you
0: blame it on the Muppets?
2: I should have. Yeah. (laughs) Animal did it. (laughs) I blame it on my lighting tech. (laughs) It was his fault. Nice. He's always the lighting guy. And so they put me in this cell... And I'm sitting there with no clue what's going to happen next. And they're like, you can make a call to a lawyer, like a 24-hour lawyer, through this little red phone here on the wall. My kneecaps are shaking. I'm so frightened. I, I think this could be really, really bad. And so I get on the phone with this guy and he's like just waking up and he's like, all right, there's a couple of things. First of all, don't say anything. Secondly... If they kick you out of Canada, there might be police waiting for you there. If they let go of you there and you're in Canada, there might be police waiting for you. He's like, you're basically screwed, but just don't say anything. And all this time passes. And my tour manager was trying to figure out what was going on. Three and a half hours, four hours. Everybody's waiting for me. Oh, my goodness. And well, they finally let me out of the cell. And they're like, look, you don't have intent to sell, obviously, but... We're going to put a seven-year flag on your passport. So anytime that you come through Canada, you're going to have to go through this process. And I walked out of the building, and I did not get arrested. But every time we would fly into Canada, I had to go through this really deep process of double-bag checking. They'd ask me, like, how long have you been an addict? I'm like, I'm not an addict. How many other drugs do you like to use? I'm like, oh my God, just let me through. <laughs>
0: and then Dan, it's not Turkey, it's Canada. <laughs> their, their prisons are like Chuck E. Cheese's,
1: I've heard. Yeah. Or, or Tim Hortons. <laughs>
2: right. I remember it was just a couple of years ago and we flew into Canada. I got that lump in my throat and it didn't happen. And I was like, seven years are up. We're done. We're done. We paid my dues Wiped away. Isn't that nice? And so we got through that.
0: <laughs> I tell you, that, that Canadian border is tough. Oh, rough. I remember I went through Detroit to Windsor once, like in the middle of the night with some friends, and my friends were drunk and they were obnoxious. <laughs> and we met a border guard and they kicked us out of the country and then had a formal form saying, we are not allowed back for like the rest of the year. Yeah. Really? I wasn't coming anyway.
1: That is reminding me that, Among the tour managers, there was advice, right, in in terms of what ports to use to come into Canada, what time to actually hit the border, try to get there right before a shift change because they want to just get you through.
2: Rent a hotel, leave your merch there on the U.S. side, bring in only what you think you might sell. Like, if you're playing two shows, you don't have to bring six weeks of tour merch because they would count it and then want to tax you. It was really heavy. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm with you on that.
1: There was a tour I did with a little band called Balloon from the UK that was opening for Sarah McLachlan. Mm -hmm. And um, their tour manager was this guy who was 27 years old and had shoulder-length hair that was pure gray. (laughs) And the story was, prior to being Sarah's tour manager, he was the tour manager for Skinny Puppy. Oh my gosh. And those guys, Nvek Ogre, were just wild men. <laughs> and one of the stories was that Ogre had managed to acquire a few grams of cocaine about a half an hour from a border crossing. And they were not gonna waste it. So, <laughs> <laughs> no way. So so they did it all
2: <laughs> before oh they got
1: God. before they got to the border and uh People were a little jittery, let's just put it that way.
0: (laughs) Speaking of tour managers, manager of Spinal Tap Ian Faith carried around a cricket bat to deal with anyone he needed to with violence. Didn't OK Go temporarily have a tour manager who packed heat?
2: Yeah, we had a tour manager for a very short while. He was also the stage manager and monitor tech. Wow. I don't know That's... how that all went together. It was just like... It's a lot of work. It was a lot of work. A lot of degrees. <laughs> yeah, it was probably a really good price. And he was... A total pathological liar. Some of the things that he would talk about, well, maybe some of them weren't lies, but they were just hard to believe. He said he owned a collection of priceless samurai swords and he didn't have pictures to prove it. He said he trained and housed a pack of wolves. This is a funny one. He operates a full-scale facility studio in Japan that's owned by members of Belbiv DeVoe. <laughs> Again, come on, that has to be real because why would
0: you pick Belbiv DeVoe? That's a seasoned liar.
2: Seriously. And then he said there was a keycap on his computer that would give him direct access to the president. And we were like, that's just such bullshit. <laughs> Again, it's got to be true because why would you lie about that? That's right. And then near the end of his time with us, a crew member came up to us and said, hey, look, dude's got a handgun in his duffel bag. And we're like, okay, we don't need that. We're going to let the guy go. And who's going to tell him? (laughs)
1: Yeah, exactly. Hey, (laughs) rock, paper,
2: scissors. (laughs) That guy's got to get fired by you, Damien. (laughs) He takes off, and a few hours later, we find out through the Amex that hundreds and hundreds of dollars of charges have been made at a Harley Davidson store for t-shirts and swag. And we're like, that's how the man goes out. (laughs) He steals a bunch of money from us to buy Harley Davidson stuff. Well, you send it to the president. (laughs) You should
0: check like on Google, Bell Biv DeVoe and see if at that time they're all wearing Harley
2: Davidson t-shirts. Yeah, seriously.
1: On the Radiohead tour... We had a a monitor engineer and production manager who was a pretty wacky guy. (laughs) He was a heat packer, too. I I, I remember going into his hotel room on a day off, and he had his gun all in parts, laid out on a towel. He'd been cleaning it in his spare
2: time. Yeah, like just cruising around the country.
0: Cricket bat is a much safer thing and probably as effective of a weapon, I would think.
1: I will say, though, Alan... When I was a new tour manager, I was 24 years old. I had petty cash of sometimes $15,000. Right. It goes beyond the realm of petty pretty quickly when you're settling all the shows in cash. And I remember walking into like a bank. Didn't have an account there, obviously, but I put my Anvil case on the counter and I open it up and I start peeling off the $100 bills and counting out $10,000 and saying, I'd like to wire this back to the home office. Or are like, w- what do you do? <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. So- um There are some risks out there.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely.
1: Fair enough, fair enough.
0: You OK Go guys are real pros. You got your choreography that would shame the Jackson 5. You've done a (laughs) TED Talk. Damien wrote a column for the Washington Post You do interviews, and they're flawless, and your shows are really well rehearsed. I mean, everything seems to go according to plan, except once. Now, I'm not calling you guys Great White or anything, but Dan, you heard a fan once, didn't you?
2: Yeah, this was a rough one. Um, We were on tour with Snow Patrol, and they were, like, pretty big. I mean, they, they were playing arenas and stuff, and we were direct support with them, and I think this was the first show we played. I don't know if it was maybe in in Seattle or something like that, and we had a really good set, and the vibe was really, really good, and the crowd was into us, and we finished our set, and I run to the edge of the stage and throw a drumstick into the crowd, but like, I really throw it. Like, as hard as I can, because I wanted to get all the way to the back. Oh, no. This is it. You know, like, I want to make this count. Roll off stage and relax, right? A couple of hours later, a knock on our dressing room door is the security guy, and I think, like, the medic for the gig, oh, no. and they're like, we need to talk to your drummer. We have an issue. And I go up there, and they're with this woman probably between 18 and 22, who's, you know, kind of like just getting over being crying. And they're like, look, you threw your drumstick out there and it hit this woman in the face. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. And she opens her mouth to speak. And one of her front teeth is completely, cleanly popped out of her mouth. Oh, my. I had knocked her tooth out. With a drumstick. So, like, that drumstick must have hit her right on the butt end, right straight in the tooth, and it knocked it clean out. And I was like, oh, my God. So, I started getting really scared. I was like, what can I do to make this better? She was calm and she was relaxed. She was like, look, I understand it was an accident. I just really hoped that you could figure out a way that I could meet the lead singer in Snow Patrol. <laughs> Not even your band. A negotiator. That's I, I'm impressed by that. I was like, uh, well, I think that there's a possibility here. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was going to get a dental bill through the roof and like all the money that I was going to make on that tour was going to be instantly gone and it was going to be really bad. And so I knocked on their door and I think the singer was just finished their set or something and... They're like, well, we'll see what he says. And then about 10 minutes later, he came out to meet her and everything was okay after that. I don't know what (laughs) happened to her, but I know I made sure that she got to meet him and hopefully uh, she got some sort of tooth replacement.
1: Dan, I just got to say, I'm not a statistician or anything like this, (laughs) but I am seeing a trend here. I can follow a trend line between the Paradise Theater bucket piss, the cocaine in your bag. (laughs) Residue. Assault on a fan. I mean, is that just you? Or would every other OK Go member have some other portfolio of stories?
2: No. My nickname is the Danimal. So (laughs) there it is. Although, although Damien did get arrested in Orlando for not listening to the Disney police and he wasn't listening to the (laughs) Disney police. And they warned him like three times to get out of the fire zone or whatever they, we were, we were trying to just connect with fans and he did not listen and he was arrested and brought to the Orlando city jail for the night and one bad night for Damien. But the, the neat part of that story was that when he went to jail, we were invited to go to one of the members of insync's house for a party and chris i think is his name one of the not well known guys and we went to his super enormous house and we had this party at his place and i don't think i've seen more drugs <laughs> in, in a house before my life and so like we went and party with NSYNC, part of insync and it was a riot while Damien was stuck in jail. Wow,
1: that's a good one though. When you get when you get arrested by the Disney Park Police <laughs> and uh, thrown in jail, there's there's a
0: well. He's lucky he didn't get sent to Disney prison. I heard it's like a Chuck E.
1: Cheese. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Canadian style.
0: So you and I, were kind of Chicagoans, yes. and my band, The Falling Willendas, preceded yours. Our heyday was, if you call it a heyday, 93 to 98. Then you guys took up the gauntlet because we were kind of known for being a promotional band. Mm -hmm. I was from advertising. Everything that we did was very well put together. We went to Steve Walters at Screwball Press and had this really cool poster made for our shows that ended up being in the movie High Fidelity. It's the main visual in the record store there. And then you guys came along and you became, I would say, notorious for posterizing the town, right? Didn't the Chicago police actually have it out for you guys?
2: Yes, they did. We would do all our posters ourselves. And Damien was a graphic design artist and had a a silk screening press in his apartment. And so we would sit up and make 400 posters, you know, big ones, big mega ones, and At around three or four in the morning, we'd go out and we'd wheat paste these posters up where hipsters would be. Awesome. And and we're talking like whole chunks of city blocks. And the police did not like us for doing this and would write citations to the Metro and to the Double Door and to Fireside Bowl. And Joe Shanahan was like, look, guys, I just got a $2,500 ticket for your fucking posters. (laughs) And I think the club owners absorbed a lot of that stuff in a very, very kind hearted way. I think they took care of that for us, but it was a problem. (laughs) It was like, we should have been charged for vandalism or whatever.
1: I think that's pretty cool, though. I think they call that sniping, don't they? The the big posters, they do it in, in New York. It's a big thing. Yeah. I don't remember it so much in Chicago, but. That's really cool that you were doing it. And when you think about it, what would Joe get for a $2,500 media spend in Chicago, (laughs) right? Right,
2: right. Nothing,
1: right. right? You're a media machine out there. I think that's pretty impressive.
0: You know, when I see a local band in LA, I always feel so relieved that I didn't have to promote their show because promoting was my nightmare. I hated doing it. Yeah. I remember once giving a flyer to a waitress for a gig and she immediately gave me one for her band and then the busboy walked over and gave me one for his band and then a customer at the next table gave me one for their band and you know i mean it's sales right it's the lowest form of commerce and and then there's bugging friends to come to show after show way past any normal person's bedtime yeah. and then you look back and you wonder why you don't have any friends left
2: yeah <laughs> they're like you guys are doing the same set like no we'll pass we definitely put in the extra hours to get that Chicago fan base on our side for sure.
1: Well, I want to ask you about kind of a riff on your strong promotional instincts and the fact that you had Damien as a graphic artist who could come with these cool posters that had the machinery to do it. And you have your guitar player is a nap developer. Yeah. And so that clearly has come in handy. Having those tools within the family both allows for a lot of creativity and saves you a bunch of cost. And that's really cool. Yeah. You've also done, you've been innovative in these partnerships that you've done with brands like State Farm. And I think that it's an interesting thing because I remember in the early nineties that having some sort of corporate affiliation for bands could be devastating, right? right? For reputations. Yeah. I was managing a Milwaukee band back at that time and they had some dinky little offer to be sponsored by a beer company for like 5,000 bucks. Yeah. And I talked to a couple of managers that I knew who had bigger bands and they said, no, don't do it. I mean, that's like the death knell for a band. Yeah. What did you see there? You embraced it. You changed it up. You've made it successful. How did you see that opportunity is question one. Number question two is any blowback from fans.
2: No blowback at all. I've never been aware of any blowback from the stuff that we've done I think when the Capitol Records let us go, we knew that we were gonna we were gonna get the support we needed from different places. Like the label wasn't seeing any return on YouTube spins at the time. And it made sense to fashion a contract with an outside, you know, non-music related company and say, look, we're gonna incorporate your product or your message into what we do in some way that's going to feel authentic and righteous for us as a band and righteous for this piece of video or this artwork we're going to do. And it was really the only way that we were going to get these things done. And so we didn't feel bad about State Farm Insurance. We didn't feel bad about Chevy. We didn't feel bad about S7 was the airline that helped pay for the waitlist video. They have their own ad agencies. So here we are, a bunch of smarty pants guys making a commercial for them in a lot of ways. It doesn't feel like a commercial, but, you know, we give props to them at the end of the videos. If you do any sort of research on the videos, you'll see that they're involved. And the ad agencies were confused. And, you know, sometimes there'd be arguments about what level we were going to let them be creatives in it. And it was usually zero. (laughs) And so there was a rub there But, uh, you know, we did a a video with Morton Salt. There's a moment where we blow up some Morton Salt cans, and that works for what they're trying to do. And it just made sense for us to do this because we wanted to make the art we wanted to make. You guys actually saw that this worked. You were able to be as creative as you wanted to be. Yeah.
1: Someone else was paying for it, and it was mutually beneficial. It wasn't like someone else was paying for it and they're taking a hit. It was almost like the definition of win-win. And... Your fans are loving it. So mm-hmm. it's win, win, win. Right? Yeah. And so I think that's pretty special. Mm-hmm. Damien said something about, and I guess he was asked a question about being worried about being considered a one hit wonder. And he said, we could go in two directions. We could either try to outcool it, try to outrun it, like Radiohead did with Creep. Or just embrace it and go, okay, what really worked here? And I know there was some period of years where they wouldn't even play that song live.
2: Right. The treadmill video could have been our creep. And we could have been like, oh, well, let's not do anything quite like that. Let's not do anything as campy or as silly like that. But it really wasn't a false step for us artistically. It wasn't like, oh, shit, we just made something really stupid It was really about making something different that we had never seen before. And it was just such a beautiful thing that YouTube had come up at that time. And MTV was like tip of the hat to the YouTube content creator at that time and let us do that routine on the VMAs. And that really broke the whole thing open. And then the Grammy sort of sealed the deal a little bit on it. So it was like, yeah, well, we could have ran away from it, but... We really enjoyed making it and the videos are tough to make. They're not a lot of fun. It was a little bit of a a stretch for me because I just wanted to rock. I wanted to be playing in the shed. (laughs) And the story just didn't play out that way. So I'm cool with having a job. Let's let's go work. You know, like it felt good to me. That's my feeling. I was just like I loved being with these guys and getting up every day and making something that none of us had seen before none of it seemed fake and if somebody had been mad about state farm insurance i'd be like well we made a a rube goldberg machine with 60 engineers in la so suck it you know like i did something really cool (laughs) but give yourself credit too
0: because it's often the drummer's like hey man i'm here for this and what is all this stuff i gotta dance and (laughs) like i notice in a lot of the videos that you're the one smiling like (laughs) Again, the staring contest with Animal, that's a performance and it's well done. And I've seen you in your interview with Miss Piggy and you're in it. I mean, you're not awkward. That's acting, you know, and you probably found skills that you didn't know you had when you were just this Chicago drummer. And I just think to your credit, you embraced something that you probably didn't think you were getting into. And I think all of you guys learned that, being in a band doesn't have to be a grind and you don't have to hate each other. It can be right. fun if you make it fun.
2: Your band seems like a blast to be in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is my job? Yeah. This is what I do? You know, this is how I make my living? Like, oh my gosh, like what a crazy blessing. What a unbelievably unchartable, unimaginable thing. Totally blast, completely blown away. And I'm psyched about it. I don't really want to spend four months in russia making another zero gravity video but the fact that i was doing it is pretty fucking great and i'm very grateful for it and for those guys
1: So, Dan, where can listeners learn more about OK Go?
2: Well, you know, there's YouTube. That's an easy one. There's a side project that we have called OK Go Sandbox. You can see that at OKGoSandbox.org. And that is head up by Anne-Marie Thomas, who's a professor out of Minneapolis. And she had the wise idea. A lot of teachers all over the world were writing emails to us and saying that They use our music videos as teaching aids in their classrooms. And so Anne organized and formalized that into this thing called OK Go Sandbox, in which us as band members and a bunch of other helpers have made teaching aids for teachers trying to get across simple science and math and music concepts to kids. And that has sort of taken off and it's not for profit, but it represents the band in this very new way and is very, very close to our hearts because we're all dads. I have a nine-year-old and he's aware of it and his teachers use it. And that's what's happening now with the band. And I think everybody should take a look at it, especially if you have kids or no teachers and share that. I think that's really represents the band in this really wonderful way. Can you say that URL again? It's okgosandbox.org fantastic
0: well dan it has been really a pleasure since we're almost neighbors we have to grab coffee sometime
2: yes totally I and
0: uh, thanks so much for giving us your time and your energy and just been really a pleasure
1: and being such a animal for us
2: you've totally <laughs> delivered time for tito's <laughs> <laughs> now this has been a lot of fun and, and thanks for having me on this has been cool
1: We hope you enjoyed this blast from the past. Check out our other episodes with members of Garbage, The Pixies, Slater Kinney, Drive-By Truckers, Old Crow Medicine Show, even comedian David Cross, actress Julie Bowen, and many others. You can find our entire catalog on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and visit our website at tmepshow.com. This is Alex Hoffman. And I'm Alan Keller. Thanks for joining us
0: on Too, Too Much, Much effing Effing Perspective.
1: perspective too much effing perspective is a milwaukee talkies original Evergreen Podcast Network.